I'd like to read today from John 3, 1 through 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we must speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Essential Doctrine is our current teaching series, What Every Christian Should Know. We're using the word doctrine as an acronym. So if someone were to come up to you and ask you, so what is a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian life all about? What's the doctrine that we embrace as Christians? You can go back to this acronym and walk them through it. So let's do that very quickly. The the acronym doctrine, the D stands for deity of Christ. The O is for original sin. The C is for canon of scripture. The T is for trinity. The I is incarnation. The oh, T-R-I. Did I forget the R? Oh, gee. (laughs) This is the only service I did that in. I messed it up worse the last service, though, I think. But okay, so what what did I miss? The I? R. R. (laughs) So the R. R is what? Can't miss that one. The resurrection, okay? You got to have that one. And then the I is... Incarnation, the N is what we're talking about this morning, new life, born again, the new life in Christ. Next week, it'll be eschatology in times. <laughs> so, so we're talking about what it means to be born again. If you have your Bibles, turn to John uh, chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 16. It's the text that we just read. We'll be referring back to that text, and you're going to want to see uh, how it's written and how we unpack it. And you can also grab your sermon notes out. And, um, and follow along. So here's what you need to understand as it relates to this born-again life, this, this new life that Christ offers us. And, uh, and, and you can see there on your notes, the Christian life is not about becoming a nice person. 
but about becoming a, a new person. It's not about becoming a nice person, but about becoming a new person. It is not, listen to me, the Christian life is not a morally restrained will. It is a supernaturally transformed heart. And what I mean by morally restrained will, it's not self-improvement, self-help, how-to. It's where God supernaturally transforms our hearts Now, what's interesting is that most people in many churches approach Christianity like it's a self-improvement program. It works something like this. They might not outright say this, but they kind of allude to this through their teaching. I heard a teaching just this last week that went along these lines, is that for the most part, I have it pretty much together, but there are a few things in my life, just a couple things that I need some work on, And so how can Jesus come into my life to help me become a better or a more successful person? They are using God for self-improvement. You see, the Christian life is not a call to self-improvement or morality and religion, but a call to repent and believe the gospel, to repent and believe in Christ Jesus. It's about being born again. It's about being born again. Now the connotations around this phrase of being born again in our culture are pretty negative. And uh, here's some of the ideas that if you uh, say that you're born again, that this is the uh, negative connotations around that with people that are not born again. Some would say it's a particular hyper-conservative, obnoxious brand of Christianity. Others would say it's uh, associated to a kind of religious political cause. And still others would say, well, it's a category for a certain group of Christians whose lives are so broken and messed up that they need a kind of dramatic turnaround to get their life back on track. Those are all the negative connotations when it comes to what it means to be born again. John chapter three is the most comprehensive chapter in the Bible on the subject of being born again. The question here, and we're going to see, how does Jesus define the term? What does Jesus say about the term? This is what we get a chance to look at. So let me ask you this question. I'm going to ask you this question throughout. Are you born again? Are you born again? Do you understand what that means? Has your life been transformed from the inside out? And uh, this message will disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And uh, so here's the four questions we're looking at this morning. What, why do I need it? You can see this on your notes. Why do I need it? Born again, why do I need it? What is it? How do I get it? What difference will it make? So let's take that first question here. Why do I need it? Here's your first fill in the blank. I need it to see the kingdom of God. Verses one through three, let's go back to the text. Let's start working through it and unpacking it. So let me reread this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is a little bit abrupt here, isn't he? He's trying to carry on conversation. He just cuts to the chase, right to the root problem. You need to be born again. Now, we need to talk a little bit about Nicodemus. Nicodemus came by night, that's verse 2, which is a symbol of, of Nicodemus being an unsaved man. He is in the dark spiritually. That's why John is writing it like that. And so what, what does that mean to be in the dark spiritually? Well, the Bible gives us a definition of what it means to be in the dark spiritually or to not be born again. Ephesians 4.18 says this, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So that would be someone, when you think of people that are not born again, the Bible defines them right there. The Bible also defines them by this uh, found in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says this, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever talked to somebody until you're blue in the face, giving your testimony to them, telling them about Jesus, and they just kind of yawn or just turn the other way or go, that's good for you. They just don't get it because they don't see it because they're in the dark. It also tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14, says the natural person, so it's referring to someone who is not born again, and the bottom line is that you're either born again or you're not. There's only two categories on this planet. You're either born again or you're not born again. And so he's saying the natural person, the person that's not born again, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, so he doesn't accept those things, for they are folly to him. I don't know how many times I've shared my faith with others, and they just, they laugh. It's just, oh, that's ridiculous. That's dumb. Well, because it's folly to them. They're in the dark about these things. They don't understand. They don't know, for they are folly to him, and he is not able so this, uh, this person that's, that's not born again, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit has to make this alive to them. So that is what is true about Nicodemus and those who are not born again. And then Jesus says this to him kind of very abruptly, truly, truly. What does he mean by that? Because he uses that, that phrase a couple more times in the text. Truly, truly, it is a double amen. So be it, so be it. It's actually more than that. Jesus is saying, this is extremely important, and I know this firsthand because I am the originator of this truth. It's a claim of divinity. Now, part of our growing notes, uh, here's a question from our growing notes, and the growing notes are part of the outline and we encourage you to take the growing notes after you've heard the message and throughout the week, just kind of work through those to take the truth and drive it down deep into your hearts. There's, uh, some of our groups, small groups, get together regularly and do the growing notes. But one of the questions on our growing notes is asking this question. Why was Jesus so emphatic? So Jesus was very emphatic. So he says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse seven, he says, you must be born again. That's the message to Nicodemus. So why was Jesus so emphatic when you consider the kind of person Nicodemus was? When you look at verses one and two and then verse 10 of our text, it gives you a little bit of his biography. 
Now, if I were to kind of summarize that, this is what I would say about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man in his community that is morally upstanding, highly educated, wealthy, very successful, deeply spiritual, and very disciplined in his life. He comes to Jesus with utmost respect and curiosity. I mean, this is altogether an admirable guy. He's very admirable. And if there was ever a guy who could stand before God based on his own merits, it would be Nicodemus. So, so what does this mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that you can know a lot about God and his word and not be born again. I think it's also telling us that you can be a leader in a local church and live a very moral life and not be born again. I think another thing it's telling us is that you can be a very respectable person and treat people with dignity and not be born again. So no amount of affluence or education or religion or morality or discipline can change the old nature in all of us we must receive a new nature from God. It's called being born again. It's called regeneration or being born again. So Jesus is, is really leveling the playing field here. I think what he's telling us, and when you include this, as you're reading through, typically when you read through books of the Bible, you go from, uh, obviously, John chapter 3 to John chapter 4, but do you know what John chapter 4 is about? Anybody remember what John chapter 4 is about? It's the woman at the well. So you got this very, very moral guy, and then he goes from there to a very immoral woman. So when you combine those together with what Jesus is saying here is that you can never be too good, that's John 3, or too bad, that's John 4, you must be born again. So, so no one is too bad for Jesus. A lot of people think that they are too good for Jesus. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 21, 32, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Why is that? Because they realize, they've come to the reality of the fact, in fact, they're closer to Jesus than many times very moral, affluent, educated people are because all that affluence and morality and education becomes somewhat of a mask that keeps them thinking, hey, I've got it together. You know, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm all about. That's called pride. That pride keeps us from knowing Christ and realizing our need for Christ. We all are desperate for Christ, whether we realize it or not. That's very clear in the Bible. And it shows you how oftentimes we live out of touch. We are out of touch with reality. The reality is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We're all doomed apart from Christ. And the Bible's very clear about that. And that's why tax collectors and prostitutes are quicker to get into the kingdom than those that are fluent and educated and, and uh, moral and very religious. And so why do I need it to see the kingdom of God? You're not going to be able to see the kingdom of God. Here's the next reason is because uh, you need it to enter the kingdom of God. Look at verses 4 through 6 of our text. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, <laughs> it's obvious here that Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's still thinking along the physical lines. S sounds a little odd. What is, 
Does he got to go back into his mom's womb and then be born again? That doesn't make, so he's, that's his rationale. And Jesus is like, no, you're talking physical. I'm talking spiritual. And so Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, and then he defines this idea of being born again. One, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So not only can you not see the kingdom, but you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He goes on, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, you shouldn't be shocked by this. This is, this is part of what the Bible is all about. This is part of what the kingdom of God is all about. So when we gotta answer the question, so what is the kingdom of God? What in the world is the kingdom of God? Because you can't see the kingdom of God and you can't enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So we have to define what the kingdom of God is. And uh, that word kingdom of God is used 160 times in the New Testament. So it's a pretty important word. Psalm 103.19 tells us a little bit of what that kingdom of God is. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So what it's telling us is that God God rules over everything right now. And by the way, you need to know, I would think you would need to know, I mean, I wanna know and I do know what he's up to. So here's his big narrative, here's the big plan. This is what the Bible is all about. We could define the Bible like this. This is the storyline of the Bible. It's not a bunch of stories that are segregated from one another, separate from one another. This one big story, and the story is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. God created us as objects of his love to draw us into the joy of the triune God. But we thought we were smarter than God. We thought we were more loving than God. And we rebelled against him. That's Genesis 3. And the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 to the end of the book, right up to the book of Revelation, is all about redemption. God's effort to send his son to rescue us and to redeem us. That's what he's up to. And if you receive his redemption, which means that he on the cross bore our sin, He bore our judgment. He got what we deserve so that we would get what he deserves. That's what redemption means. It's pretty spectacular when you begin to understand that, how he's redeemed us. And so so if you choose to let him bear your punishment for your sin, you're under his kingdom and rule. But even if you don't, you're still under his rule kingdom and rule because eventually you will face his second coming where he brings judgment on the planet and then there's this new heavens and a new earth it's called restoration it's the book of revelation so that's the kingdom of God the kingdom of God so if you don't if you don't I mean I'm I'm in on the first coming okay anybody else like that yeah 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 so I'm thankful I am so thankful that he bore my judgment I get what he deserves, he got what I deserved, but if you refuse him, if you don't repent and believe in him, it's just a matter of time. He's coming back, the Bible's very clear about that. He's gonna balance the book, settle the score, make things right, and you will face his judgment. 
So those who are not born again will face his judgment. It's very clear. The Bible's very clear about that. In fact, this plan, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that's God's ultimate plan. That's what he's up to, and it will not be thwarted. John, uh, Job 42.2 makes that very clear. God's ultimate plan will come to pass. That's his ruling and reigning over the planet Earth. But if you want to come specifically under his rule and reign now, you repent and believe in Jesus Christ and, and who he is and what he's done for us. And actually, uh, Jesus said in Mark 1.15, this is how you enter into his rule and reign, his kingdom. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how you can be a recipient of, of this uh, redemption that he has brought with his first coming so that you can avoid um, the judgment at his second coming. So, so it is not just about going to heaven when you die, this, this idea of the kingdom of God, but it is having a slice of heaven on earth. I mean, think about the implications of being under his lordship, under his rule, receiving the redemption that he came to bring to us. I mean, the benefits are innum- innumerable. They're, ju- they're just beyond your wildest dreams, when you really understand what it means to be born again and to receive the benefits of being under his rule, to see the kingdom and to enter into the kingdom. It is knowing and experiencing the blessings and advantages that flow from living under Christ's rule. I mean, we could spend all day just talking about those. And you probably should have a list of those where you go back to regularly just just reveling and basking in the reality of who you are in Christ, who Christ is, what he's done for you, and, and believe me, it will transform your life. So it is knowing and experiencing the blessings and advantages that flow from living under Christ, Christ's kingdom, which let me just give you just a few here, okay? I, I, wanted, I wanted to move on, but I'm gonna continue. I'm gonna talk a little bit about just, here's, here's some of them. Here's one of the things that I've experienced personally in my life as a result of being under his kingdom, under his lordship, repenting and believing in Jesus, is that he lavishes me regularly with his love. I'm lavished with his love. There's no love like his there's no one on this planet that can love you like he loves you. So, so being under his rule and reign, he lavishes us with love. He liberates us with his truth. The more you get to know him and understand his truth, oh my goodness, there's an amazing liberation. There's freedom. And he leads us. He leads me with his presence, his power, and his peace. And then he launches us into his redemptive story. We become recipients of his redemption, but we are proclaimers of his redemption to the world around us. We we want them to come to know him before time runs out because eventually it will run out. So that's that's why we proclaim the gospel of our Savior. So the kingdom of God is what you've been looking for your whole life, whether you realize it or not. Uh, Romans 14, 17 gives us a a definition, another definition of the kingdom of God. It says, the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but anybody know that verse? The kingdom of God is not, nobody knows that verse? How do you know whether that's really in the Bible, huh? It's in the Bible. You can look it up. Okay. The kingdom of God, it's found in Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. What is it saying? It's not rules and regulations. It's not morality. It's not religion. It's not a self-improvement program. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, yes, imputed righteousness. 
He gives us his righteousness. He took our unrighteousness on the cross. So it's imputed uh, righteousness, but it's also imparted righteousness. He begins to conform our lives more and more into the image of, of his son, Jesus. We become more like Christ. It's amazing. So righteousness, peace, peace that goes beyond our understanding, joy, oh my goodness, indescribable, indestructible joy that we have. It's, it's amazing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible um, have you guys heard me say that before? Okay. I say that probably every weekend, don't I? This is like my favorite. They're all my favorite. Okay, but this is actually really my life verse. This is a life verse for me. It's found in Matthew 13, 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven. By the way, when Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, it's synonymous with kingdom of God. He's just trying not to offend the Jews. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field that's me that's what happened to me oh my goodness the treasure I found in Christ I was willing to give it all up so that I could know him and experience him so what it's saying here is that the kingdom of God is a magnificent obsession with the heavenly treasure beside which everything else in life is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus. If you don't believe that, it's because you can't see that and therefore you can't enter into that. You need to be awakened spiritually by the work of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that. So why do I need it? To see it and to enter the kingdom of God. So what is it? That's the next question. So what is it? What's going on when someone is born again? Well, it is spiritual, it is mystical, it is experiential. Let's look at those three ideas here as we continue to unpack the text here. So it is spiritual. Verses four through six, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit. We gotta define that. So what does that mean to be born of water and spirit? Because he's defining the born again experience here to be born of water and spirit. Now, some would believe, some believe that it's uh, water baptism, and it's not, because that would make uh, water baptism, uh, it, it would be the, it'd be a false teaching of baptismal regeneration, that somehow water baptism is required for uh, being born again, and that's not true. There's actually a, a megachurch in the valley that actually embraces that, that it's called baptismal regeneration, that it's requirement for you being born again or becoming a Christian. That's not what it's saying, that's one. Here's another uh, explanation or interpretation is that being born of water and spirit, some would say, well, if you read on, he says he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse six kind of answers that for us. That which is born of flesh is flesh. So some have said, well, being born of water is being born of flesh. It's, it's physical. He's going from physical then to the spiritual. He says, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And, and, and I, I'm okay with that interpretation, but I'm gonna give you even a better interpretation of that. Everybody knows that the best commentary for scripture is what? It's always scripture. So let me give you some from scripture that I think gives us some understanding and explanation of this. It's found in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. Let me read this because he's, 
he's prophesying about this born-again experience in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So he's talking about calling out his people. And I will sprinkle. Now, here's the uh, being born of water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. That's the uh, being born of water. Now, here's the, what, is, what it means to be born of spirit. He goes on, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you, that I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So being born in water and spirit. Here's a, here's a New Testament verse that helps us to understand that idea. Titus 3.5, he saved us, so that would be being born again. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness. You can't earn it, you can't achieve it but according to his own mercy, now here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born again. And so this, uh, this washing of regeneration, what does that mean? What does that talk about? Well, anytime the Bible talks about the washing of our lives, it's actually talking about how the word, the word of God washes our lives clean. In fact, it says in Ephesians 5.26, we are sanctified by the cleansing of the washing of water with the word, is what he says. So it is a cleansing, so this is what it means. So what does that mean? What What does it mean to be born again? Well, it's spiritual, and it means this. It is a cleansing of the old self and a creation of the new self as a work of the word of God and the spirit of God. So to experience that, you have to hear the gospel. It needs to be proclaimed, but as the gospel is being proclaimed, the Holy Spirit makes it alive, makes it real to the hearts and lives of people that are hearing it. And they become born again as a result of that. They begin to see the kingdom of God. They go, whoa! And they enter into the kingdom of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God as it's being proclaimed. Let me give you a... uh, Another couple verses that help you with that. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. So it's about the Spirit giving us life. The flesh is no help at all. It's not how-to, self-help, you know, self-improvement program. The words that I have spoken, this is Jesus, so the words I have spoken, he proclaimed the gospel to them. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 1 Peter 1.23, he actually helps us to understand this idea of being born again. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So what is this being born again? It's spiritual. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to where we begin to see the kingdom of God and we begin to want it more than anything and we enter into it. As he, his, he cleanses us from the old self and gives us a brand new self in him. It's also, it's mystical. That's the next fill in the blank on your notes. So what do I mean by that? Why would I use a word like that? Well, it inspires a sense of mystery, awe, and fascination. That's why I used it. And he, he uses this idea of the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So he's referring to the, the wind as the Holy Spirit 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So just as the wind cannot be controlled or understood, but its effects can be, can be witnessed, so also it is with, with the Holy Spirit. I was out just here between services and I went out in the back here and the youth were sitting at the picnic table back there and they were just soaking it up because the wind's kind of blowing. It's a nice, nice wind and they're sitting out there and enjoying the sun, uh, sunlight, just enjoying it. Sometimes that wind can just be very soothing. Nothing like having kind of the wind blow through your hair. And um, just, I, I do have hair, okay. Nothing quite like that. Nothing quite like the wind blowing on your face, I maybe, maybe I should say, on my bald head, okay? Oh, it feels good. But there's something about that. It's very mystical. You don't understand it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, and yet you can see the effects of it. That's the idea here. You, you can see the effects of it. It's um, Ezekiel 37. So we, we talked about Ezekiel 36, and now Ezekiel 37, the next chapter over, uh, he... he you begin to see this valley of dry bones. How many are familiar with the story of the valley of dry bones in the text here? So it's, it's Ezekiel 37. So Ezekiel, the prophet, has this vision, and God takes him to this very dry, dusty valley filled with bones, and he tells Ezekiel, uh, prophesy over these bones. So there's the word of God being spoken, and then as he begins to speak, the word of God over those dry bones, the Holy Spirit comes in there and makes those bones alive. That's what it means to be born again. He's showing us that in the Old Testament. That as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes that and makes it real to your heart. You go, oh, wow. That is amazing. I need that. I want that. I can't believe it, what I have in him. That's, that's part of that born again experience the last thing people expected in Jerusalem was that Saul of Tarsus would be converted and and, and this no doubt initially created some fear but then later on as they realized no this guy that murdered Christians he killed Christians he's he's been born again he was on the road to Damascus have you heard his story and they had to have been, there had to have been a sense of mystery and awe and fascination that the most violent opposer of the gospel is now a trophy of God's grace. That's part of that, it's, it's a bit mystical. I mean, it had to have blown their minds. And, um, and, and I think it tells us a number of things. One of the things that tells us, listen to me, tells us that if this guy that killed Christians was converted, boom, like that, almost instantaneously, uh, as he encountered the living Christ and he was born again, he went from killing Christians to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to his death. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. You, as you think about it, it's just, and, um, and, and here's, the, like I said, here's one of the big ideas here is that no one, it tells us, when you look at the Apostle Paul, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. You know, when you look around, do you have a few people you think, oh, they'd be the last one to ever come to faith in Jesus? You have a few people like that? I got a ton of people like that, okay? And, uh, and, and yet, it's telling us, no. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. In our game of life, we, we bring in the various leaders to give their testimony. And this last week, uh, Amy Augustine 
who's the executive assistant in hospitality and game of life and small group coordinator. She gave her testimony. She, she was a good Catholic girl, grew up in a Catholic church. And her grandmother had emphatically told her, Amy, you shall have no other gods before you. Basically, she's quoting Exodus 23. And certainly, Amy had some basic understanding of the fact of the cross and all that Christ did for us on the cross. And she had that understanding growing up in the Catholic Church. And yet, uh, about a year after her grandmother passed away, Amy was on a treadmill working out. And God's word came alive to her, those words of her grandmother, they came alive to her and transformed her life. I was asking her before she gave her testimony, I said, so tell me, how do you, how do you know you were born again? How, have you been born again? And she began to describe this experience on a treadmill. All of a sudden, boom, those truths that she had, had proclaimed to her, talked to her, became real to her heart. She said she was never the same after that. And, and so this born-again experience, can, it can happen instantaneously as it did for Amy, as it did for Paul, or it can happen also gradually as it did for Peter and for me. It was a gradual thing. If you were to ask me, well, when were you born again? I couldn't tell you exactly when that happened, but I can tell you it was kind of over this period of time. The realness of who Jesus is and what he did for me begin to begin to take hold of my life. And I begin to go, oh my goodness, this is absolutely breathtaking, this is amazing. I want him more than anything. So this is what we're thinking about here on weekend services. We're thinking about setting up treadmills in here <laughs> for our worship services. So they're kind of twofold, so you can work out, get in shape, and be born again. Okay, obviously that's a joke, but but here's the point. You cannot meet the creator of the universe and remain the same. Here's the point. You cannot meet the creator of the universe and remain the same. There's a problem when people talk about meeting God or knowing God and yet remain, remain unchanged by God. If the God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present comes to dwell within you, you will not be the same. You will no longer be suited for a normal life. People that aren't born again are going to look at you and you're going to go, you are one strange bird. <laughs> They're going to go, I, I don't understand them. I don't understand what's going on because they can't see the kingdom of God. Therefore, they can't enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, think about it. We hear God. We interact with the living God of the universe. We know him. He lives within us. That's what it means to be born again. Oh my goodness. It transforms our life. So it's, it's spiritual. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's mystical. Don't fully understand it. Can't control it. And it's experiential. And what I mean by experiential, it's, I don't mean feelings. We'll, we'll, it's, it, I'm talking about more, I'm talking about faith. This is not about feelings, it's about faith. Let's, let's continue to work through our text. So uh, verses 9 through 13, uh, let's read through this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And 
so, so uh, Nicodemus is still at a loss. Verse 10, Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You should know this. You read the Bible. So that's why you can read the Bible and not know it and not understand it. Be very moral and, and not be born again. And so Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So Jesus marvels that a teacher of Israel doesn't understand this. And in verse 11, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not, here he's kind of hitting the nail on the head, you do not receive our testimony. So his problem is that he doesn't receive the reliable testimony of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, uh, John says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So Nicodemus is not receiving it. Jesus says that. He doesn't, he doesn't receive, but you do not receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus says, I have taken you as far as I, I can by way of explanation. You can't go any higher. You keep pressing me for deeper and higher explanations of the new birth. But, but a heart of unbelief, an unregenerate heart can't see or enter into the kingdom of God. So let's talk about this. What is this Holy Spirit experience that Nicodemus is missing? And I think we need to go back to what Jesus said. So, so how do I know that I'm born again? How do I know that the Holy Spirit's actually dealing with me, that I have the Holy Spirit living within me? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 16 through 17, this is just before he's gonna be hanging on the cross. So he's the upper room discourse. He's talking to his disciples, giving them great explanation of the work of God in their lives. And so he says, John chapter 14, verse 16 through 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So just as I was with you, he will be with you to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth calls him the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Those people that are not born again, they cannot receive him because it, because it, the world neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's defining this whole idea of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, so what is the Holy Spirit up to? What can I expect that the Holy Spirit will be helping me to do when it comes to this idea of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Well, exactly that. Listen to what he says. He says in, in John 16, 14, that the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me. So he'll glorify Jesus. What does that mean? Make much of Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. So, so here's the experience. I believe that as the Holy Spirit, as you hear the proclamation of God's word and the Spirit begins to make it alive, he takes those truths, makes make them real to your heart. What are those truths? Is that you begin to see that Christ is more desirable and more satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death could take away. You begin to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ in your behalf, and that becomes so real to you. You become alive to that. In fact, I believe that the spirit-filled life, I've, uh, I've often heard people define it as some kind of weird, weird kind of behavior. 
I actually believe the spirit-filled life is that Christ becomes so real to you that you're no longer overwhelmed by the, uh, the trials of life or overtaken by the temptations of life. He is real. He is with you. He loves you. You're a child of God. You're a friend of Christ. You're a member of the family of God. You begin to realize that. That dawns on you. That's the spirit-filled life. He's going to glorify me, he said. He's going to take that which I've done and make it real to your heart. That's the spirit-filled life. You want him more than anything. And, and that's part of that born-again experience. Christ becomes more desirable and satisfying. More desirable and satisfying than all that life could give. There's nothing compares to what you have in him. And, and more desirable and satisfying than all that, that life, uh, that suffering and death could ever take away. Even in the midst of suffering and death, there's a satisfaction in Christ and what we have in him. So through the Holy Spirit, what happens is that you begin to hear the inaudible voice of God comforting and convicting consistent with God's word. You sit in a message like this and it begins to, as I, as I speak these truths, as we speak these truths, it just it begins to come alive. You go, yes, yes, I need that. I want that in my life. You begin, to, you begin to see the invisible hand of God working all things for your good and his glory regardless of your circumstances. You just know in your heart because the word is very clear that he's working for your good. He's not holding anything out on you. He loves you. And not only that, like the best part of this is that you begin to experience the inexplicable though undeniable presence of God that gives you a fullness of joy. Oh my goodness, there are moments in my life, I kid you not, <laughs> that I experience his presence and it fills me with such joy that I gotta tone it down around friends because I know they're gonna think I'm out of, out of my mind. Like this guy is crazy. But I may just, it, it lights me up just to know that I have his presence. I love his presence. I love his presence. That's part of that. And so, so what is it? It is is spiritual. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's mystical. Can't control it. Uh, don't fully understand it. But it's experiential. Makes you alive to who Christ is and all that he's done. So how do I get it? Well, he answers that for us. Christ must die. Christ must die. And he says that in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much, so must the son of man be lifted up. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Anybody know what he's talking about here? Actually, he's talking about Numbers chapter 21, verses four through nine. This interesting event here, and that is the Israelites have been set free from Egyptian bondage and are, and are being led by Moses to the promised land. And on their way, despite God's amazing and miraculous provision, they begin to murmur, complain, and, and become terribly bitter toward God. And boy, am I sh sure glad we are way beyond that. Um, but so God, what does he do? Anybody know? Anybody like snakes? Anybody hate snakes? It's a really creepy story because God, in an act of judgment, sends poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel and many are bit and begin to die. 
the people do a 180, they repent and begin to cry out to Moses to do something, and so God tells Moses to lift up a bronze serpent on a pole in the midst of the camp, and anyone who looks at the serpent will be saved. So bronze represents judgment, the serpent represents sin, the pole represents the cross of Christ. And so this is a beautiful picture of how God has dealt with the poisonous sin in our souls without destroying us and by placing all of our sin upon Christ on the cross. And if we will look to him, we will be saved. That's the picture that he's painting here. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a little more insight into what this means in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. He says this, so those that have been born again, those that are in Christ have become a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. All things have become new. And then he goes on, he says, he talks about we've been reconciled to God, we have relationship with God, and we become ministers of that reconciliation. Then he kind of, at the the end of this, as you're working through this, he says this, very, very powerful words, he says. He says, this all happened because he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, stand before God perfect in relationship with him nothing can ever separate us from his love he will never ever ever leave us or forsake us we didn't earn that we didn't achieve that that was earned and achieved through Jesus Christ and uh, and so Christ must die we must believe now we got to talk about belief because I think there's a lot of people that think that they believe but they don't actually believe and it's because of their definition of belief. And he says in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Christ must die, and you must believe. You must put your faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Hebrews 11, 1 Uh, Actually, the whole chapter defines faith for us, us, but the very first verse gives us the definition, and then it shows you how it's lived out in a lot of different people's lives. But faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So what is it that we hope for? By the way, the word that's used in the Bible for hope is not wishful thinking. It's confident, joyful expectation. So it's not I hope so, but I know so. This is that I know so. This is what I know is true. Faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you don't, do not say. What do you hope for? This is what I hope for. I hope for the good news. I hope for the gospel, the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. That's what we hope for. We hope for all that Christ is, that he is who he said he is and he did what he came to do. And that through that, We experience redemption, regeneration, born again. That's what we hope for. That's what we need. That's what we're banking on. That's what we're wanting more than anything. And then he goes on and he he explains what that looks like in our lives. Hebrews 11, 6, he says, faith, uh, uh, faith is, he says, whoever would come to him. So he says, so this is Hebrews 11, 6. Whoever would come to him, if you want to have a relationship with God, whoever would come to him must believe that he exists 
and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So it's more than just, I, oh yeah, I believe in God, or yeah, I have, you know, I have a mental ascent towards the fact that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he came to do. No, 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 no it's much more than that. You're gonna diligently seek him, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So faith, faith is not a formula, it's not a force, it's not a feeling, it's fellowship with God. It's entering into a relationship with God that you diligently seek him with all of your heart. To believe in him is more than agreement with facts in the head. It is an appetite for him in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. You want him more than anything. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, so he's saying comes to him and believes in him are synonymous. And, and when you read the, uh, the language here, the grammar is actually, it's a present active and indicative. It's not the way you just came to him or you had that born again experience. No, You've had that and you keep coming to him. You have relationship with him and all, it satisfies you. It brings satisfaction to you unlike anything else. So it involves really the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us, entering the head so there's content to our faith. So that needs to be proclaimed. So it enters our head, it ignites our heart. There's a conviction. You begin to believe, yes, I'm in, I'm all in. And then there's this commitment, which is, so it enters our head, ignites our heart, outworks through our hands. There's that commitment as you begin to live that out in your life. It is making Christ your core commitment, your deepest love, your most foundational hope that controls your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. Now, Spurgeon includes in there this idea of repentance. It's certainly part of that because we need to repent and believe. So a repentance that has no faith in it is not repentance. A faith that has no repentance with it is not faith. So here's what repentance is based on 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. It makes a distinction between worldly repentance and godly repentance, and I've seen people repent in a worldly way and, and you need to know the difference and so worldly repentance is feeling sorry for yourself. Godly repentance is indignation over sin, eagerness to turn from sin and to turn to the Savior with fear, longing and zeal. It talks about that, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. So what difference will it make in my life? So that's, that's what that means. So um, I need to, Christ needed to die, I need to put my faith in him. So, so how do I know that I've done that? Let me give you three things here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish. Did you hear that? Oftentimes we know the first part of that. Oh, God loves the world, but guess what? Apart from him, you will perish. Those who are not born again will perish. That's the context here. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So here's my question for you. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? It's the most important question you could answer for time and for eternity. And how do I know? Here's the first one. You realize how lost and how loved you are. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the more you realize how lost you are, the more his love is life-changing 
Here's what it begins to dawn on you. When you look at the cross, when you take communion regularly, when we watch water baptisms, this is what's going on in your heart and mind when you understand the cross and the work of the cross is that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. And yet we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. You and I were more sinful than we ever ever dared to think. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. But he loved us so much, he wanted to die for us. That, that's what, it begins, to, it begins to hit you deep in your heart. I was, uh, Nancy and I were talking to a gal in our church here this last week, very godly woman, very sweet gal. And uh, we were talking about... Uh, you know, these dateline and these 48 hours and how these, this perfect couple, there's such a perfect couple and it ends in murder, you know? How does a perfect couple end in murder? They always end in murder and uh, one murders the other or something crazy like that. And then we went to, a, you know, a more positive conversation after that. We went to uh, people who are serial killers. And, uh, <laughs> and so as we were talking about a little bit of serial killers, we, I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's one thing to m- murder your spouse, but then to murder a whole bunch of people on top of that, you know, serial killers. And this is what the gal said to us. Very godly, very respectable woman. She says, I know that God forgives but I don't know how a serial killer could ever become a Christian. I responded by saying, it's because you don't know your own sinful depravity. And she slugged me in the head. (laughs) Actually, she didn't do that, but she goes like this. She said this, oh, thanks for the reminder and for wrecking my day. I didn't wreck her day, but she was just like, oh, that was a gut punch. And she goes, yeah, you're right. I don't know my own sinful depravity. I don't know my own lostness. All of us, apart from Christ, will perish. And we will get what we deserve. I don't want to get what I deserve. I want to get what Jesus deserves, okay? He got what I deserve so that I could get what he deserves, the great exchange, it's breathtaking, it's amazing, it's the Christian life, it's being born again, it's regeneration, there's nothing quite like that. And what happens is that you begin to realize more and more how little you deserve and how much you have received in him that it eliminates any attitude of entitlement and fills you with an attitude of indebtedness for all eternity. If he never did another thing for you, you're okay because of what you have in him. You feel forever indebted. See, when a, when a helpless child is being swept off his feet by an undercurrent on the beach and his father sweeps him up just in time, he does not boast. He hugs. That's us. Okay, that's the first one. You realize how lost and loved you are. Here's the next one. You, you come to Christ not because he's useful but because he's beautiful. And yet there's, there's nothing more useful than finding God beautiful, Psalm 27.4. David is working through the full gamut of problems. He's got all kinds of problems mounting in his life. And this is what he says. This is the cure to my problems. One thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. If I can gaze upon his beauty, I can face anything. I can face all my problems. That's, 
That's what he's saying, that God is beautiful. See, most people, as I stated as we began the, the teaching, most people in many churches approach Christianity like it's a self-improvement program. They are using God for self-improvement. The deepest and most enduring happiness is not from God, but in God. It's not from God, it's in God. Here's the last one. You will live a cross-shaped life full of humble confidence. The cross is not just the means by which you are brought into God's family, but also the pattern for how you live this, live in this world. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Romans 12.1 and 2, talk about the life change that will happen as a result of the cross. It will be a life of sacrificial love for Christ and others. And it will create this humble confidence. Humble confidence? Yeah, you were so sinful, Jesus had to die. How could you ever have any pride in your life and ever feel like you tower over anybody but it also eliminates any cowering to anybody he loved you so much he wanted to die why would you ever cower why would you ever feel inferior to anybody so it creates this beautiful blend of humble confidence as your life is more and more shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ Spurgeon put it this way the man that lives near to God is a mystery more or less at all times he is not all that he desires to be nor all he hopes to be but he is far beyond what he ever expected to be it's the Christian life. Charles Wesley, he, he wrote a hymn. It's, the title is, And Can It Be? It was written immediately following Charles Wesley's conversion when he was born again. He was, he was certainly a very immoral man and really knew the scriptures, but it wasn't until this time, May the 21st, 1738, that he was born again. And, and in the song, the refrain says this, after each verse, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And the one verse I want to share with you here is this verse that really helps us to understand this being born again and what happened in his heart and life. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, speaking of God, thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Okay, next weekend, eschatology, end times. We'll be talking about it. We're gonna give you the four different views that are within the pale of orthodoxy. We'll talk about what we all do agree on as far as the second coming of Christ, and we'll talk about how we can be more prepared for a second coming. Uh, I'll be up front here at the end. If you're new, I would love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason whatsoever, we would love to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, your mercy has spared us. Your grace has saved us. Your love has satisfied us unlike anything else in this world. I pray for those who are not born again, that the light of the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would shine in their hearts, awakening them to their desperate need to repent and believe in Christ Jesus. Father, may you do that now through the work of your Holy Spirit. To those that are here, to those that are in the, in the breezeway, to those that are even listening online. 
And as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.16, may we never be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Fill us with a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that's so much that it ruins us for anything else, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.